Good morning to you. If you have your Bibles, go, you can uh, go and start making your way to Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. New Testament, near the end of your Bibles, Hebrews 4. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. Maybe someone around you you can look on with, or we should, I think, have the words up on the screen for you. But while you're turning there to Hebrews 4, I want to just say a few things uh, here um, this morning. So first of all, like Stephen mentioned, my name is Caleb. Uh, I have the privilege of being a member here at uh, CBC. Let's check on this thing. Okay. Yeah, it's un- undressing up here. Here we go. Thank you, brother. Thank you for your patience. All right, here we go. Uh, again, my name is Caleb. Uh, I'm a member here, and I want to uh, start real quickly just by saying thank you to you all, to this church that has uh, quickly become family to me. Um, you have been Very encouraging to me since I moved here over the summer in July of this year, and uh, it's been a joy just getting to know many of you, and uh, for those of you who I have not met yet, I look forward to meeting you and hopefully deepening relationships and friendships with you as well. So I want to thank you for that and for praying for me and just inviting me into your lives since I came here, so thank you for that. Um, Today is also, it's been alluded to already, but today is a helpful reminder for me and for all of us as a church that the foundation and focus of this church is not a lead pastor, which Justin would amen that over and over and over again. It's not a lead pastor, as great as Justin is. The foundation of this church is not the elders that God has blessed us with, even the new ones that he has blessed us with even recently. It's not the musicians. It's not the members, it's not the children, the hospitality team, it's not the musicians who lead us every Sunday, which thank you for doing that every Sunday, musicians. All that to say, today is a helpful reminder to me that the foundation and focus of this church, by God's grace, is simply this, Christ and Him crucified. That's it. It's the gospel, it's the word of God, and when it comes down to it, at the, at the end of the day, this church is not about any of us, it's about one person, and His name is Jesus. That's it. Last here, before we look at God's word, I do want to just express uh, what a joy it is for uh, for me to be able to preach this morning. This is an unexpected privilege that I have to open up God's word with you. Uh, It's an unexpected treat for me, and so I'm thankful for this opportunity. Um, And at the same time, I certainly feel the weight of my own inadequacy, and I feel the weight of my own weakness just standing here right now with God's book and with all of you in front of me waiting to hear from the Lord. Um, And so it's in moments like this when I'm reminded of places in God's word like 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 where the Lord says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. We're all weak, just some of us are better at admitting it than others. And, uh, but the reality is that we are all weak, and like every single Sunday, we need God's help um, once again. And so I want, you, uh, I want to invite you to pray with me one more time, and then we will look to the Bible. So uh, let me lead us in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you this morning that 
It's when we are weak that you are strong for us. We thank you for the truths that we've sung today and that we've prayed today and confessed today. We thank you for this Jesus who is strong and kind for us. God, we thank you that in Christ, our, our failures are not final and you do not define us by our faults or by our weakness or by our inadequacies. So we thank you for that, God, and we do pray um, that Christ would be magnified this morning through the preaching of your word. We pray um, that you would help me as the preacher to speak with boldness and with truthfulness and with clarity. I pray that you would give all of us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us. We pray that we would behold Christ together this morning and that we would leave here encouraged by the gospel. We pray that your word would push us deeper into the good news this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. This is a brief passage. It's a wonderful passage, familiar to many of you, I trust. I'm going to read our passage as you follow along, and then we will talk about it. So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. This is God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. It's a great, great passage. I feel like it's appropriate for a morning like today uh, and every day for that matter. But as we walk through this, I have four points for us this morning. Just want to let you know that ahead of time. Um, four pretty simple points, yet no less profound, I don't think. But there's nothing fancy. Four points. Um, and what they are related to is we're simply going to look at four qualities of Jesus that we see in this passage. That's what we're looking at this morning. So four points. Here's number one. Jesus is the great high priest. Very simple. Jesus is the great high priest. So we see this right here in verse 14 in your Bibles. We have a great high priest who, is, uh, who has passed through the heavens. And who is this high priest? It says right there, Jesus. So from the Old Testament, we know um, what uh, a priest is. A priest is someone who speaks to God on behalf of the people, uh, and not everyone we see in the Old Testament could approach God. They had to have a designated person to fill that role, to talk to God on behalf of the people. There were regular priests in the Old Testament, and then there was a high priest, which was kind of the chief religious official of the time, and uh, this was the one who all other priests looked to. The high priest is the highest authority in the Old Testament, in the world of Israel, and just for your knowledge, the Bible seems to say that Aaron was the, the first high priest of Israel. Uh, this was the older brother of Moses. So just to keep track here, Moses was the first high priest, and then we have Jesus, who is the last and the greatest high priest. We, we need no other priest because Jesus is the great high priest. We need no other mediator to approach God because Jesus is our mediator. The Bible says that there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. He's it. He's who we need. This, this means that we don't have to rely on someone else to deliver a message to God or to access God. We can go straight to God, and we'll talk more about that 
as we walk through this. But uh, we, don't have a, we don't have to have a priest to fulfill that role that, that priests used to do, where they would make sacrifices for our sins. Why don't we have to do that anymore? Because the great high priest himself was the final sacrifice for sin. And listen to what the writer of Hebrews says later in, in chapter 10. So uh, if you want, you can flip over there. You don't have to. I think Hebrews 10 is going to be on the screen as well in just a moment. Uh, but this, this is amazing in Hebrews 10. So before I read it, in the Old Testament, you had these high priests, and they would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. They would approach God on behalf of the people of Israel, and they'd make sacrifices for the sins of the people. Sin has to be punished. There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So there were sacrifices. The problem, though, is that the people would go back and sin again. Sounds familiar, right? Sounds relatable, I think, to my own life. The people would sin again. The priest would have to go back in. They would have to make another sacrifice. And this was essentially the life of the high priest in, in Israel and in the Old Testament, making sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel. There was no rest there was no uh, break for the most part. It was out of necessity. So making sacrifices because people kept sinning. And, and, and we all know people like, like these priests, right? Just to kind of modernize it. It's like that person who is just going, going, going all the time. Uh, they never take breaks. They never sit down. They're always, there's always more work to be done. That's how these high priests were. They'd make sacrifices to God for the sins of the people, but again, every time they turned around, there was more sin committed and more sacrifices to be made. So with that in mind, listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Perfected for all time, single offering, single sacrifice. You see all these words and all these phrases where it's like, the, the, the point is that Jesus has done it. Jesus, the great high priest, has done it. I love that picture there. I know Justin has talked about this before. It says that these priests would stand daily at the service of God. They're repeating, again, these same sacrifices. They, they didn't sit down because they're, again, always on the move to atone, trying to um, uh, atone for the sins of the people in, in a particular way. But when it says that Christ had offered a single sacrifice once for all time, what does it say? It says he sat down. He gets to sit down because it is finished. The work is done. I love that. It's such a wonderful picture of the work of Christ on behalf of sinners. The work of paying for the sins of the people is finished. The sacrifice for sins is done. It's over with once and for all because this work uh, of saving and forgiving people and atoning for sin is finished. Jesus sat down. His work was done. There's nothing left to be done by Jesus, and there's nothing left to be done by the people of Jesus. It is finished. There's no more atoning work for a high priest to do because it has been done. And, and listen to this. Uh, Jesus is the great high priest, um, and he's not making sacrifices for sins, but you know what he is doing? One of many things that Jesus is doing right now is he is praying for us, even now. Right now, Jesus is praying for his people 
He's praying for Covenant Baptist Church. He's praying for this preacher. Praise the Lord. We see an example of this uh, in the high priestly prayer. So John, as the, uh, Jesus, as the priest, he prays this high priestly prayer in John 11 through 14. You don't have to turn there. Um, read it later if you want. Um, so we have John 11 through 14, but then listen to Romans 8, uh, verse 34. It says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Even now, like I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. Uh, this is happening. Even now, right now, Jesus is talking to the Father on our behalf. Let's not get over that. He is praying for us. So I hope that's comforting to you this morning. Jesus didn't pay for our sins and then just forget about us and move on to other things. Like, check, I'm going to move on to something else now. I finished with those people. Jesus is still deeply concerned for us, for his people. He cares for you. You are on the mind of Christ. You're on the heart of Christ. Listen to this quote from Robert Murray McShane. Maybe you've heard this before. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Jesus is the great high priest, and he's praying for you even now. So be encouraged with that. That's number one. Point number two. We'll keep moving. Jesus is the God of heaven. Jesus is the God of heaven. So Jesus wasn't only, uh, he, he wasn't the only high priest, um, but he was the only high priest to pass through the heavens, like our passage says, and sit down at the Father's right hand. He was the only high priest to do that. He's the only high priest to ascend to God's heavenly throne. He's the only high priest who was also the Son of God, which is a divine title for this Jesus. This high priest, Jesus Christ, is God himself. So Jesus is no mere mortal that we worship. The Son of God is God himself. This is one of those things that the Bible teaches that if you try and wrap your mind around it, it'll just break your brain and you're not going to get it and I'm not going to get it. However, it is a truth and it is a precious truth that we want to reflect on for a few moments this morning. God the Son uh, is not the same person as God the Father. We don't want to get confused there, but they are both God and at the same time, there's only one God, right? Again, just break your brain, but it's true. This is what the Bible teaches. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person is fully and truly God. I want us to, on a related note, uh, look at a few different portions of God's word for a moment that speak to this reality of Jesus being God. This is, if we don't believe this, if we get this wrong, then it's not really going to matter a whole lot what else we get right. Um, so I think there's going to be good use of time. Don't flip back and forth through your Bibles like it's Bible drill unless you want to, because um, I'm going to read several. But John, Chen, John 10, chapter 30, Jesus says these words. He says, I and the Father are one. Now, a little bit about that. Maybe you read that verse, and I've had people talk to me before about this, say things like, maybe that verse means something different. That may not exactly mean that Jesus is God. Maybe he's just identifying with the Father. Maybe it means something different. But listen to the verses that immediately follow that in John 10. So Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And the Jewish people, at least, in his immediate surroundings, they knew exactly what he was saying. Verse 31, right after that, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him for what he had just said. 
So what he's just said, whatever it meant, the Jews are ready to kill him for it. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? So Jesus is asking questions. What's the deal? What do you, what, what's the problem? And then verse 33, they clarify exactly why they're ready to kill him. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So Jesus was very clearly claiming to be God himself. They said to him, we want to stone you because you're calling yourself God. And he was claiming to be God because he was God. He's the son of God. Here's another one. John chapter 10, verse 58. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And again, the Jews are ready to kill him for making such a bold claim. Verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You you may remember back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3 that Moses meets with God alone up on Mount Sinai. And before he goes back down to tell the people of Israel what God has said and what they're supposed to do, he asks God this question. He says, when the people ask who you are, what name should I give them? And God says, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. So when Jesus says those words before Abraham was, I am, He's claiming that he's eternal, and he's also claiming the same name that God used to reference himself. It's really clear in the Bible that Jesus, the Son of God, claimed to be God. A few more, real quick. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 uh, is another one that you could write down. I'm not going to read that one, but um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? Uh, God created the heavens and the earth. And then Colossians, uh, yes, I am going to read it. Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and by him. So the beginning of the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth. Colossians 1 says all things were created by Jesus. There it is. The Son of God is also the Creator God. A few verses later there in Colossians 1, verse 19, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There it is, our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all over the Bible. It's in our passage today. And it's even earlier in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Here's the last one related to this. The writer of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus is greater than the angels, And he's saying things like this, the writer of Hebrews, he's saying things like, to which of the angels did God say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he says this in verse 8, but of the son, same son that's in our passage today, of the son, Jesus, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So it is plain as day in God's word that Jesus is the God of heaven. I, I think, I don't know about you, but this makes me want to praise the Lord this morning. He is the God of heaven. This is good for our soul to think about even some of the simple basics of our faith that are so profound and they glorify God as we think about them. So uh, Jesus is the God of heaven. Kind of the other side of the same coin here as we move into point number three, Jesus is the sinless man. Jesus is the sinless man. This is such an important point. So Jesus was truly God, but he was also truly man. He wasn't half and half, right? He's fully God. He's fully man. Even the fact that his name is Jesus points to his humanity. He was given that name at, at his birth. So just think about this reality for a moment. God himself, the one who created the sun and the moon and the stars and the mountains and the trees and the galaxies and so many other things, this same God was born. Today's the, the first Sunday in December, which means that Christmas is coming, means the elf is on repeat at my house, means the decorations are coming up, the Christmas music's playing, Christmas is coming, and so it's appropriate. Let's think about the birth of Jesus for just a moment. Uh, think about this God who was born, that we celebrate in particular in December, although we do year-round as well. He, he was born, God was born, and he rested in his mother's arms. He, he looked up into Mary's eyes knowing that he was her creator. It's remarkable. He cried as a hungry baby, just like we all do. He, he had to learn how to chew and how to crawl and eventually walk just like we do. He had to learn how to talk before he became the teacher. He walked on water, and at the same time, he had to learn how to swim. He knows really well what it's like to be human, this Jesus does. And that's comforting. It's a comforting truth for us this morning. Verse 15 in our passage today, Hebrews 4, says that Jesus, being a human, is able to sympathize with our weakness. He was tempted just like we are. Matthew chapter 4 is one example. It talks about how he was tempted by the devil multiple times, but he never gave in. And, and yes, he was God, but lest we be confused, the temptation to sin was very real for Jesus. Very real. He had many moments whenever he was physically, mentally, and emotionally weak. He was so stressed, for instance, in the Garden of Gethsemane that he literally sweated blood. Never sinning through any of it, but he's human. Through all of this, he never sinned. He got tired. He needed rest. He needed communion with God. He needed fellowship. He needed so many of the same things that we do. He knew what it was like to be homeless, the Bible says. Son of man has no place to lay his head. He knew what it was like to be ostracized by even his own family. He had relatives who called him crazy for some of the things that he said and did. He was God, and at the same time, this Jesus is so relatable. He's a God who identifies with us because he was one of us. He walked among us, he faced temptations, he battled sin, but he never gave in, never once, just like verse 15 in Hebrews 4 says. Let me, kind of similar to what we did earlier, let me give you a few other passages that talk about Jesus being sinless. It's kind of a biblical theology for us today. 
So in order to have our sins forgiven, here's just one reason why this is important. In order for us to have our sins forgiven, we need someone else to take our punishment if we don't want to receive that punishment ourselves. And that someone else had to be sinless. They had to be sinless. The sacrifice for sins had to be a spotless lamb, an unblemished lamb. And thank God for us, Jesus was that perfectly spotless lamb. Spotless lamb on a sinner's cross. He was the righteous one. And again, uh, I, I want us just to walk through a few different passages that speak to this, this glorious truth. So first one, 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 talks about the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then over in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul writes that Jesus knew no sin. We'll just do the whole verse. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Just amazing. Over in Mark 14, verse 55, it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. And, and listen, if, if you spend more than 10 minutes around me, you're probably going to find some kind of sin come out. It'll be there, and you'll probably find it. But think about this. The Pharisees, they watched Jesus for years. They had their eyes on him for years. They were actively looking for dirt on this Jesus, but they never found any. They tried to. They certainly accused him, but they never found any dirt on him. Why? Because there was no dirt to find in our Savior. Think about this for a moment. Think about, uh, kind of on a slightly different note, but related, think about how difficult it must have been for, the, for Jesus to never once give in to temptation. You ever thought about that before? Jesus' own battle with temptation. He, he sympathizes with us in our weakness and in our temptation. Here's the thing. So for most of us, facing temptation is hard, and it usually continues to get harder the longer we resist, right? This is just one of many examples we could do. Just um, think about when we're by ourselves with our phone or our computer, it can be really tempting to start searching for things we shouldn't be searching for. You start searching for uh, pornography when we're by ourselves, on our computer, on our phone. Here's what usually happens in those moments. The longer we resist, the harder it gets to keep resisting, right? The stronger the desire gets, the stronger the temptation feels. As time goes by and we're resisting, trying to follow Christ, we're trying to honor other people, the longer that we're not getting in, we start to think, why is this so hard, right? You ever thought that, fighting temptation? Like, God wants me to not sin. Why is it so hard for me to not sin? We have these thoughts. We're getting pulled towards sin, and it's just really, really hard not to give in. And the longer that we resist, the harder it gets to keep resisting. But what usually happens in those moments when we, when we give in to our sinful desires, when we don't hold out forever, when we stop resisting, what usually happens is we experience relief, right? Even if it's only for a moment. If you're like me, you feel like this weight has been lifted. Even if it's just for a moment, you're, you're, you're no longer struggling. 
right? Because he gave in. And usually it's not long before the weight of guilt and shame and regret starts piling on all of these things. But the bottom line is that giving in to our sin is just plain easier than resisting it. And think about Jesus. He was resisting sin literally his entire life, struggling against it, fighting against it. He felt that tug of sin as we do every day, and it never went away for him. He never experienced even a second of relief by giving in to sin. And because he was human like us, it's safe to bet that the longer that he said no, the harder it got to resist. But he kept fighting sin. He kept fighting temptation. He never succumbed to it. And that is good news for us this morning. It's amazing good news because if Jesus had sinned even once, then he would not be that spotless lamb for us. He couldn't have traded our sin for his righteousness because he'd have his own sin to deal with. But Jesus was completely without sin. And because he was sinless, we can be forgiven. There's this great line in what might be my favorite hymn, of all time, called Before the Throne of God Above. And if this has been you, where you've been in a place before where you felt really overwhelmed by your sin, maybe as we were just talking a moments ago, you have had sin in your life that you have given into even this week, and it is you are acutely aware of the sin in your life, even at this moment. If you're feeling the guilt and the shame right now this morning, even as a child of God, and you are not sure even how God could still love you in your sin, you know that he, he does, but you don't understand how he does. You don't feel it. Maybe, maybe that's you this morning. And if that's you, listen, listen to the second verse of this song. It goes like this. When, G, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, and God the just is satisfied to look on him, Jesus, and pardon me. Amen. So, so listen, examining your heart and your sin patterns and your weaknesses and things like that can be a really good thing, because we, we do that every week. We're recognizing our sin and our weakness and, and all of those things. Being spiritually introspective, taking a closer look at the ways that we're prone to fall into temptation. These can be really helpful things to do. The Bible even calls us, it tells us to examine ourselves. Make your calling and election sure. It gives us exhortations like this. But let's make sure that even as we examine our own lives, even as you examine your own life, be sure to keep your focus on Jesus, the sinless one. Keep your focus there on the one who lived and died in the place of sinners in your place and rose again. Robert Murray McShane, I quoted him earlier. Let me quote him again. He said this, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at yourself and your own weakness and your own sin and your own struggles, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ, this great high priest, this God of heaven, this sinless man. That is good advice for us from Mr. McShane there. We are sinners. We are sinners, even as we're justified and forgiven. And as we walk through this life and as we continue to struggle against sin, as we maybe even have questions from time to time about our own standing with God in light of our sin, doubt, lack of assurance, all of these things, let's keep our focus 
not on ourselves. Look at yourself. Like we talked, look at yourself. Look at your sin. Look at those things. But let's keep our focus not on ourselves, but on Christ, the sinless one. The one who sympathizes with us in our weakness. All right, so that's Jesus as the sinless one. And then we'll keep moving. Number four, Jesus is a timely helper. Jesus is a timely helper. Jesus is helpful. And I realize this feels like a massive understatement, right? feels like saying Michael Jordan's good at basketball or Michael Jackson's good at entertainment. Yeah, duh, right? Jesus is helpful. We get it. But again, uh, I I want us to meditate on some of the simple truths that are in our passage this morning and in our Bible. Sometimes it's, for me at least, sometimes it's the simple things that I need to spend the most time on. So like we already talked about, verse 15 here in Hebrews 4, it says that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That means that he identifies intimately with us. He, he knows what it's like to suffer and to struggle, to battle sin. And so we can go to him as someone who understands us. Many of us, myself included, we oftentimes find it easier and more helpful to discuss things with people who have experienced what we're experiencing, right? People who have been there, done that. So a lot of times those people are easier to talk to in any given situation. Like if you have a chronic illness, for instance, it's helpful to talk with someone who has experience with their own chronic illness. If your marriage is on the brink of divorce, it's helpful to talk with someone who has had a similar experience. Now, obviously, that's not to discount someone who hasn't had that experience. They can still be a help to you. But the point is that a lot of times we find help and comfort by talking with those who have experienced what we are experiencing. If you're unemployed and you just can't seem to get a call back from anyone, it's refreshing to talk with someone who's been in that same boat before, who knows what you're going through. And because Jesus experienced life as a human, because he knows what it's like to struggle and to suffer and be tempted, he's a good person to talk to. He's a really good person to talk to. He's a good person to bring our concerns and our frustrations to even this morning. Not everything went right in the life of Jesus. Obviously, it was ordained and um, planned by God, and, um, and it was all in accordance with what was meant to happen. And at the same time, not every single day in the life of Jesus was a great day, or um, not every day in the life of Jesus looked exactly like everyone thought it would. We're experiencing an own kind of, our own kind of funky morning this morning where things don't look exactly like we thought they would yesterday morning. Um, And it's in these moments that we can go to Jesus and we can talk to him as someone who understands and has experienced these similar types of emotions and concerns. We can talk to him with our frustrations. So when you need someone to talk to, obviously you have your brothers and sisters and you should take full advantage of talking with people in this room and other members of this church, family members and whoever, take your concerns to them. But also remember that Jesus is a really good option to talk to. He knows what it's like to live life in this fallen human world. So whatever is on your heart today, this morning, and any other day, take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the great high priest in prayer. He will listen. He will understand. And then verse 16 here tells us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. I love the adjectives and the adverbs that are put into the Bible. For us, it doesn't just say approach the throne or approach the throne of grace. It says approach the throne of grace with confidence. 
with confidence. This doesn't mean, of course, arrogantly or self-righteously or casually, but it does mean what it says, with confidence. These verses say that when you're in need, you can go to God confidently, boldly, with Jesus as your mediator, opening the door, being the door for us, knowing that you will find the grace and mercy that you need. It may not look like the grace and mercy that we think we need, but it will be what we need. You won't be turned away. You won't be misunderstood. You won't walk away empty-handed when you go to God. Again, you may not leave with exactly what you wanted, but you'll leave with your hands full of exactly what you need. So we can draw near to God boldly and unashamed because of Jesus, because of who he is, because of what he's done. And again, God is a holy God. Holy, holy, holy. So we want to approach God with reverence. He's not, he's not our homeboy, right? We want to approach him with reverence. He's the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. But how amazing is it that as this king and as this Lord and as this holy high priest has forgiven people trusting in Jesus, we can come before this king, this Lord, this holy one, this high priest. We can come before him and speak plainly and speak honestly, and we don't have to hold back. We don't have to fear getting reprimanded. We can come to God without fear that God will shame us or punish us for what we say. If you ever feel like you can't go to God because he's angry with you or frustrated with you because of your sin, I don't know if you've been there, I have. And if that's you, come back to these verses. Come back to these verses. The gospel tells us, these verses tell us that we can go to God without fear of rejection, without fear of vengeance or wrath being poured out on people because someone already took care of that. It's when we're overwhelmed and it's when we're weighed down and struggling against sin and succumbing to sin and struggling with the circumstances of life in this fallen world that we must, uh, that we most need to go to God. It's when we most need to go to God is when we've sinned and when we've struggled and when we've had a rough day and when we've lashed out at someone and when our quiet time hasn't been what we want it to be and when we've disobeyed our parents. It's in those moments that we most need to go to God. When we are feeling at our weakest, it's when we most need to go to God and get the strength that only he can give. So if you need strength to battle temptation this morning, if you need some help fighting the sin in your life, which, by the way, is all of us, then go to God and ask for his help. He delights in giving people grace and mercy in time of need. God desires to hear from you. This Jesus desires to hear from you. He makes this relationship with God possible. So we can draw near to God with confidence because God first drew near to us in Christ. Verse 14 here tells us to hold fast to our confession. We do that even in a number of practical ways here at this church. By confessing our faith, we confess the truths of our faith. We confess our need for God. We confess what Christ has done. We confess our own sin. Hebrews 4 says to hold fast to our confession. Basically what this means is to keep believing. It's telling these Christians to keep believing, keep trusting Christ, keep following him, keep believing the truth. Even adapted to this morning, keep coming to church, keep helping other people in the church to follow him. Just keep doing it. Just keep doing the basics, doing the simple things, trusting Christ all along the way. And if we are going to do any of these things, 
if we're going to have any hope of even simply trusting Christ, we need the mercy and grace of Jesus. We need God's help. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead now and bow our heads. And we're going to ask God for his help one more time this morning to give us the grace and mercy that we need. Father, we do come to you this morning in Jesus' name, the only name by which we can approach you. And the only name that gives us any confidence that you will hear us, that you will not turn us away or ignore us or shame us. So we come to you in Jesus' name and we ask you for your grace this morning. We ask for an extra measure of your mercy. God, we thank you for your forgiveness and for your care for Covenant Baptist Church. We thank you for raising so many of us in this room from death to life through Christ himself. And God, as we get ready to leave this place in a few moments, God, we, we recognize once more that we need your help. If we are going to leave this building and love our friends, love our family, love our spouse, love our kids, love our enemies, if we're going to trust in Jesus, if we're going to follow him, if we are going to deny ourselves, if we're going to take up our cross, if we're going to confess our sin to one another, if we're going to do any of these things, God, we need grace and mercy from you. So we ask you with boldness and with confidence, knowing that you will give it to us. And we pray this once again in Christ's name. Amen.